Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 30th of August, 2023, just after one, one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, uh, we have Alex Thompson, Debbie Evans, and a special guest uh, that you'll see in about 10 minutes or so. So let's get straight on then with, uh, well, the big news over the, yesterday and today is uh, the ultra-low emission zones uh, in London. And this was the Evening Standard uh, tweeting this out uh, yesterday. Uh, Sadiq Khan's controversial ULA's expansion launched today, bringing 5 million more Londoners into the clean air zone. Uh, they're extremely excited about this. Many, many people not so excited about it, as uh, everybody will be aware. So uh, described by many as much hated, uh, it now uh, expands to all 32 boroughs, boroughs of London. Uh, and as David was saying on Friday, on Monday, sorry, uh, uh, £12.50 daily charge to drive uh, what are described as the most polluting vehicles around London. Um, this is likely to bring two and a half million pounds a day into uh, the London City uh, Assembly, and uh, it's going to raise billions, of course. Uh, unfortunately, yesterday it didn't all go quite so well because uh, the website fell over uh, pretty quickly. But I just thought we'd have a look at uh, a couple of the comments uh, that are out on Twitter. So this is Richard James. The expansion of the ultra-low emission zone got off to a turbulent start as Saboteur stepped up a campaign to disable its enforcement cameras. So more of this uh, going on. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, various uh, demonstrations and so on. Yellow boards uh, out in force. Uh, this was uh, Rise Melbourne tweeting this one out. London's anti-low emission zone tolls. Uh, the fight back against the ULS continues to grow. The people are finally waking up to the government lies and so on. Uh, this resulted in what some were describing as violence outside Downing Street, uh, really the police uh, behaving in the usual way with these types of protests uh, and pushing people aside and so on. Uh, Sadiq Khan was on Channel 4 News uh, last night talking about it. We have a little bit of uh, video here. Uh, let's just have a quick listen to what he was saying. In absolute terms, what the Euro's expansion will lead to is a 10% reduction in nitrogen dioxide from cars, a 16% reduction in particulate matter from uh, cars. And in terms of absolute terms, we saw in central London a reduction of 230 tonnes of nitrogen dioxide, but the expansion will lead per year to a reduction of 363 tonnes per year of nitrogen dioxide. In terms of carbon emissions, we saw per annum a reduction of around 13,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide when the Central London scheme began. The expansion will lead yeah, I mean, to 27,000 uh, tonnes of carbon dioxide. So Alex, he's talking about uh, you know a couple of tens of thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide claimed to be saved as a result of this. Uh, that's against an emission of something around, like according to the official figure, something around uh, 30 million tons that, uh, in London as as a whole. So it's a it's a fraction of a fraction there, uh, but this is clearly getting people motivated. It got them motivated here in the Netherlands first, Mike, where nitrous oxides became a matter of uh, concern because of the uh, uh, arm's length government agency RIVM. Uh, claiming that uh, speeds needed to be lowered on motorways here. So they're still at the equivalent of 62 miles per hour rather than the more usual 70 miles per hour. But magically, that's only in daytime and in the urban areas. You know, at night, you can speed down a foggy motorway at full volume and never mind the nitrous emissions. Uh, so that particular lunacy hasn't come to Britain yet, but uh, it's likely to follow. And that, that what you see with Khan, of course, is that uh, political literacy as to quantities and volumes is is sorely lacking, perhaps not quite as badly as we saw with um, 
the, the congressional and Senate hearings recently, of course, where um, uh, Al Gore got a real drubbing for not knowing figures, but it's a drop in the bucket wherever you look. Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, let's let's just have a look at uh, this then. Uh, this is a geospatial commission uh, charging ahead, uh, and they are looking at uh, using location data to boost local uh, EV electric vehicle charging points and so on. This is a massive data gathering exercise. But I just wanted to highlight uh, what they said in the uh, first paragraph of their press release because it's related to this. By 2030, the sale of new petrol and diesel cars will be phased out. And by 2035, all new cars and vans will be zero emission. Transition to EVs will be enabled by a dependable, well-located public charging network uh, that local authorities are ideally placed, placed to help to deliver. Now, of course, uh, Sadiq Khan is uh, becoming the poster child for the opposition, and rightly so. But this uh, goes well beyond him. Uh, now, here's uh, uh, Martin Wolf. Uh, Rolf, sorry, NATO's, uh, uh, sorry, Nat's chief executive. This is the National Air Traffic uh, Control System chief executive. Of course, the last couple of days we've had uh, this issue of uh, flights being cancelled and so on as a result of a so-called technical uh, issue, technical failure. So the, the statement on this was, I'd like to apologise again for a technical failure yesterday while we resolved the problem quickly. I'm very conscious that the knock-on effects at such a busy time of year are still being felt. Uh, he said, NATS exists to allow everyone flying in UK airspace to do so uh, safely. Very occasionally, technical issues occur uh, that are complex and take longer to resolve. Uh, he went on to say, this is what happened yesterday. At no point was UK airspace closed, but the number of flights was significantly reduced. Uh, and uh, initial investigations of the problem show it relates to some of the flight data we received. Our systems, both primary and backups, responded by suspending uh, automatic processing uh, to ensure that no incorrect safety-related information could be presented to an air traffic controller or impact the rest of the air traffic system. There are no indications that this was a cyber attack. So what appears to have happened is that they received some data from one of the airlines, uh, uh, some flight data, which was en entered into the system, and the system fell over at that point and stopped uh, doing its uh, automa automated processing. Now, we're talking about air traffic control systems here, and we're expected to believe that uh, those systems are so lacking in robustness uh, that uh, a mistake in some of the data provided uh, caused the whole system to fall over. Uh, particularly interesting, the coincidence that it happened on one of the busiest days of the year. So um, we might have a view on this, but I wanted to highlight this from Toby Young this morning, because really what we're seeing here, whether it be through ultra-low emission zones, uh, the drive for uh, electric vehicles uh, and the inconvenience on the railways and in air now is absolutely a drive to get rid of travel altogether, it seems. That's how it appears. Alex, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I like that little uh, uh, cartoon that Toby Young was pushing out this morning because it, everything is, is uh, sort of breaking down in terms of travel and we're supposed to expect uh, to, to believe that that is accidental or... Uh, mistakes or what? Once again, Mike, it's the cross-jurisdictional approach that sheds light on where this is coming from, because uh, the different things are thought to be uh, get-awayable with in different jurisdictions, if you like. Just yesterday, I was strolling back from shopping in my Dutch city, and I saw that uh, some of the political factions on the city council had put a poster up that uh, some of the Kinos 
um, put in their private windows, which is how I found out about it in someone's window there, uh, saying they're going to have a meeting next week on getting cars out of urban spaces. This is an absolute necessity, and the whole blurb, much more Dutch than British, was about how do we get the plebs to go along with it? And interestingly enough, in the Dutch variant, they brought along the city's poet laureate, of course, funded by the public purse. Uh, so different approaches to the same end, which is get people to be content living in one box and uh, not moving very much. Uh, indeed. I will talk about this a bit more in extra, I've no doubt. Uh, let's move on to Debbie uh, now. And Debbie, we've got a, a guest, Dr. Ros Jones, with us today. Um, to take us through this. Yes, good afternoon, and thank you very much. Well, there seems to be an onslaught of pharmaceuticals coming down the line at great speed for babies. Um, and we've mentioned them many times before. First one I'm going to highlight for RSV, which is respir respiratory syncytial virus. Um, this is a product by Pfizer with a bit of an unpronounceable name, a brisbo. I'm sure Dr. Jones will correct me. And the second one is the second product, uh, just to remind you, is Bayfortis from AstraZeneca, which is a monoclonal antibody. Now, I also want to remind people um, as well of Dr. Jones's excellent articles on heart. Um, Dr. Jones has written many, many excellent articles. And as a consultant, retired paediatrician, I would really urge you to go and have a look. And there's actually another article. I'll just draw it to your attention so that you can go and look at the articles on heart. And without further ado, I want to introduce and uh, thank Dr. Ros Jones for joining us. I'm not a paediatric nurse and I don't have paediatric pedi experience, which is why when I've been concerned about these medications, I'm really grateful to Dr. Jones for her input. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Jones. Please could you tell us a little bit about RSV in babies and what your concerns are over these new medicines that are coming down the line. Welcome. Thank you very much, Debbie. Hello. Um, yes, bronchiolitis is an infection caused by this RSV virus. It's a common virus. It's been around for, you know, we've known about it for decades. It's presumably been around a lot longer. So there's nothing new about RSV. It comes every winter. It has a quite a sharp um, peak over about six weeks when cases go up and then they come down again. And for most people, it just gives you a cough or a cold, but it can be a problem for the elderly as any winter virus can, but also particularly at the beginning of life. So the babies most at risk are if they're under six months um, at the time of the this winter season, particularly if they've been preterm and have other problems. So for most full-term healthy babies, this is not a big deal. That's not to say they don't end up in hospital and there are, you know, every winter children's wards will be full of kids who've come in with this condition. But they mostly, they'll, they'll get better and they'll be fine. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that later on. So in terms, there, there's been a long push to try and find a vaccine for RSV. There was one back in the 1960s, which was particularly disastrous. And I think it would have been a much worse disaster now because they'd done some animal work and that had hinted there might be a problem. But they'd gone ahead and done the first clinical trial in only 40 babies. 20 got the vaccine and 20 got a blank placebo. And they seemed to be fine when they were given the injection and they made antibodies, as you'd expect. And then come the next RSV season, the placebo babies, one of them landed in hospital and there were no deaths. And the 
vaccinated babies, 18 out of 20 landed up in hospital and two of them died. Well, of course, they then didn't go on to do the big study that was planned. But in today's day and age, we rush everything through without really pacing, you know, first let's do a small study, then a slightly bigger one. How long will we follow them up, etc.? Um, so on that was the background. So then there was nothing available for a long time. I think people were really frightened off because of this experience. And the next thing that came along was a so-called monoclonal. So there are two different ways you can gain immunity. Active immunity is when you've either had a disease or had a vaccination and your immune system learns to recognize this foreign bacteria or viral protein so that if you meet it again, you have the memory of how to make more antibodies. And then the other system is passive immunity. And of course, that's what babies get from their mums during pregnancy. Any antibodies that the mother has made to different diseases will cross the placenta naturally and also come across in breast milk. Um, but the baby isn't making them for themselves. So those antibodies only last as long as they last in the system. They'll just be in the circulation and they'll wear off after you know, three to six months. Um, and so it was using that system that they produced a monoclonal back in the late 1990s called palivizumab. And it's quite effective, but it was specifically trialed for babies at high risk. Now, I've certainly had experience of using that. We used to set up a little clinic for babies who were extremely preterm. They'd had chronic lung disease. They might be in home oxygen. And for them, getting RSV could be, you know, disastrous. Um, and the only downside of it really was that it was, it didn't last very long. So it needed monthly injections from October through to February. So the one they've brought out now, which you've just referred to, this uh, Novizumab, um, is, uh, has the advantage that it's only one injection. It seems to last for six months. So they would give it at the beginning of the RSV season. So if you look at the Green Book, which is the sort of vaccination Bible, it's not been updated and it's still got a nice chart there for who should get palivizumab. And it's worth having a look at that because if they follow that for this new monoclonal, I would have no, no, you know, arguments about it. But what they seem to be doing is they've conflated. If you look at the reports on, on this nervizumab, they've included a load of studies of full-term healthy babies and the benefit from those for hospitalizations, we're not talking about deaths because babies don't die of this in the UK. They just don't. Um, but term, full-term babies, they've reduced the hospitalization rate from 1.6% to 0.6%. So you could say that's a sort of, um, you know, 70% reduction, or you could say it's a 1% absolute reduction. So it's not, you know, it, it's, is it really worth giving this to every baby when we don't have any long-term safety data. And what worries me is any vaccine, you can make a good case for that individual vaccine. But what we're doing is constantly adding more and more to the system. Um, and we don't really have any long-term data on the cumulative benefits of lots of vaccines, whether active or passive, as in this case, um, and how it affects the developing immune system for a healthy child. Um, and that immune system's got to last them for life. So that, that's my concern. I think they're rushing this because it's convenient. It's very expensive. And if you look at death, somebody's done a freedom of information for the last 10 years to the Office of National Statistics, and the average death rate per year that they've linked to RSV 
for the whole population was 5.3 deaths per year. That was three per year for over 60s and 2.3 per year for under 60s. There have been several years with no deaths. Now, this is very different from third world countries where like anything like measles, for example, is a killer if you're malnourished. Um, and RSV bronchiolitis will be a killer if you've got no access to hospitals and oxygen, etc. So that's my worry. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for that. Very briefly, for people watching, because I know that you've got another appointment um, to go to, could you tell parents and grannies and uncles and aunties and anybody that's looking after babies at the moment, when should they worry? I mean, you know, what can we do here? Should should everybody be running out or what are the symptoms? What we should what should we be worrying about? Well, I think the obvious symptom is when a baby's too breathless to feed, because most babies, when they get uh, bronchiolitis, they might breathe a little bit faster, but they're pink. They're a good color. They're still, you know, eye, plenty of eye contact. They're feeding well. They've got wet nappies. Um, and because it's a viral infection, you can, you know, afford to watch them. But with some of them that you can see they're working harder and harder. And because of it's hard work to move the air in and out, they can't breathe deeply. Therefore, they breathe more quickly. And they get to the point where actually they're too breathless to take a feed properly. And those are the babies that definitely need to be in hospital because they might just need to have a feeding tube and have the breast milk or formula down the tube for a few days until the virus infection clears. And of course, the other big warning sign was if you're worried about their color, because of course, a small number of these babies might end up needing oxygen. But the, the proportion, you know, you might have one in, in the hospital where I worked, we would have one or two babies each winter who needed to go on a ventilator for a few days. But we'd have plenty who came in and just had to be given a little bit of oxygen or just just feeding and then went home. But the vast majority of the babies in the town never came anywhere near hospital. And that should still be the case. Dr. Jones, thank you so much, because with all the fear being ramped up at the moment and RSV is very much in the news, it's really reassuring to hear from an expert like yourself and for parents out there, please go and research. Please make your own informed choice over what you give your babies. Dr. Ros Jones. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Dr. Ros Jones. Okay, uh, Alex, sticking with uh, COVID then, uh, let's move to uh, Germany. There's been a huge amount going on in Germany. And as usual, I'm indebted to Eugupius, who's the best blogger in English on what happens in Germany, linking also to primary sources. Uh, the first story is uh, uh, German COVID response. We'll go on to other European COVID response shortly. Um, this is uh, relates to the gentleman in the middle of the picture here, Judge Christian Detmar. I'm still trying to find out whether he has been struck off the judicial register as a, as a result of what's happened. But we know for certain that he has been given a suspended two-year jail sentence and convicted of rechtsbeugung. The closest equivalent in English law would be conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. There he's pictured at Erfurt District Court together with his legal advisers. Uh, the meat of it is, um, uh, we'll be hearing in a moment, uh, but the, the wrap up is that he's not an ideal COVID dissident. This goes back to uh, an April 2021 ruling which he made uh, that uh, 
the COVID measures in schools were um, against the rights of the child. And this, this led to, to a jurisdictional tussle uh, because he's a family judge and not an administrative court judge. The latter would rule on the proportionality <clears throat> and legality of health um, uh, measures. Uh, but having been found guilty of perverting the course of justice or literally in the German bending the law uh, by allegedly uh, trying to get uh, a parent to appear before his court in a pre-cooked arrangement so that he could say, you're quite right, this is all unlawful. I find these measures uh, unlawful. People will remember that his house was then raided and his devices seized. The upshot now is that he's been convicted in Erfurt because um, the, his, his original ruling was overturned uh, after it was appealed by his uh, state uh, ed education authorities in Thuringia. Let's see Oigupius' um, long and the short of it here, his, his analysis of what went on. He wasn't the ideal clean dissident, but you can have sympathy for him, is what Ogupis is really saying. Uh, had, the, had this hero committed similar improprieties in favour of masking, he would never have been investigated in the first place. What improprieties? Well, uh, they're not on screen, but uh, allegedly he went fishing for people whose surnames began with the letters that would be allocated to his uh, court. That's it. It's on an alphabetical rotor system. And he then hid, allegedly, his uh, pro or uh, freedom anti-lockdown anti sentiment shortly before the case was uh, brought before him. For detail, people can use uh, from the, sh the show notes, uh, go to a, a translation uh, engine and find what Legal Tribune Online is saying. The headline here translates as uh, why the Erfurt District Court uh, decided to uh, convict on conversion, uh, sorry, a conspiracy to pervert uh, the course of, of justice. Um, moving to uh, sickness in Germany, uh, Merkur is reporting that sickness absences have gone up by two thirds, 61% as against the 2022 levels and the year is only two thirds over. Uh, as the headline mentions here, two professional groups in particular have been affected. They're not uh, primary carers in healthcare settings. Um, there's there's no particular COVID or sickness worry there, it seems, but it is the carers for uh, the young and for the elderly, so daycare and uh, care home settings where there is already high sickness. Uh, of course, this is completely inexplicable to mainstream media why there should be a two-thirds uh, uh, growth in, uh, in the sickness absence figures, but uh, other bloggers have picked up that the same is going on in other Central European countries with similarly high Jab ratios, uh, no, no uh, coincidence there, I would suggest, with my non-medical opinion, uh, up to, to medics to, uh, to decide whether I'm wrong there. Up in Norway, the Folkehelse Institute at the Public Health, Health Institute has put together this, what's been described as contradictory and cowardly note to the local councils, the municipalities that run healthcare in the Norwegian system. Information note number 57 on COVID vaccination program. Uh, let's go to an English summary here by a German uh, living in Norway uh, who blogs as Defacal 2.0. Uh, Epimedios is his other name, uh, his, his blogging name. Norway scraps COVID vaccine program. And uh, the meat of it is here that among the four points you just saw in the Norwegian text, the second one is there's no longer any justification or routinely jabbing healthy under 65. So the working age population, unless they have um, complications or, or at a higher risk, they shouldn't be jabbed. Uh, not just Epimedius, but others uh, analysts have said that this is inherently self-contradictory because if you read the whole of what he says from the show notes, they're being very mealy-mouthed and trying to find reasons why others should be jabbed. Um, and then in the commentary part of the article, Epimedius says the most reprehensible part is that these health mandarins are continuing to say that pregnant women are at risk. And therefore, although they're, of course, by definition under 65, uh, they should be jabbed. 
History, Epimedia says, will not be kind to the public health bureaucrats that insist on this insanity. Now, not just wanting to go on bloggers, uh, I uh, resorted to new contacts of ours who, as it happens, Mike, you and I were uh, introduced to last week from the UK Column studio by a mutual friend, Document News. They are pan-Scandinavian in content. <clears throat> they also have that document.news is the main um, uh, uh, website they have or URL, but they also have Norwegian, Swedish and Danish sites, document.no.se.dk. And uh, I asked them for uh, a comment on this. They went straight to the original Norwegian sources and they said, yes, Epimetheus findings are significant. It's not just one blogger. It's more significant for others than for Norwegians, they think. This information note we just showed, they say, is undoubtedly self-contradictory. But the confusion uh, is going to be not just among the likes of us analysing it in media space, but also these poor local council officials who have to decide whom to go and jab now. And uh, uh, the document's uh, colleagues continued, all three of us here at Document find that this confusion is intentional, which doesn't bode well for us Norwegians. We agree that given Norway's obsession about being in the lead with Seppi, Gavi and so on, there'll be more about that, so those outfits later, it's conceivable that this lies behind the intentional confusion. In other words, it's not done in Oslo to say the jabs are nonsense, so we have to hedge it about. And NRK, the public broadcaster in Norway, that piece itself made intelligent Norwegian viewers raise their eyebrows. So it's not just the likes of us making it up. Uh, going on again to, sorry, that's the end of my segment. Yes. Okay, Alex, thank you. Right, we'll come back to uh, COVID a later in the program. Uh, so you got a quick uh, preview there. It's uh, time to say that if you would like to support the UK column, if you like what we do, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Join us as a member. Uh, and that uh, gives us the support and helps to build community as well. So please uh, go along to that. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, Debbie, uh, your latest blog is out. It is indeed. And what does Bill Gates have to do with wildfires? Uh, find out if you read my blog and Tickbox Culture. Oh, and by the way, if you want to fly to New York from London in 90 minutes, that's in my blog too. Um, okay. Tomorrow at 1pm, uh, uh, the interview slot is going to be filled by Brian speaking to uh, Clive DeCarl. It's been quite some time since we've spoken to Clive. Uh, but uh, get along uh, to that if you possibly can, 1 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, and then uh, just to highlight a couple of uh, items on the website, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, his interview with uh, David Scott is up on the website. Uh, and also uh, Brian's interview with uh, Trevor Kitchen is on the website at the moment. Um, uh, but Debbie, uh, the MHRA, it's that time of the month again, and uh, their latest board meeting uh, is open for tickets. Yes, I had to write to them to remind them that I'd like the link. And there you have it. Please roll up time. Please join the MHRA board meeting on September the 19th. Tickets are free and they need to know that we're watching them. OK, and uh, Alex, a uh, couple of mentions from you. Yes, uh, we have uh, now got the professional wedding photos back from the UK column wedding of Mr. and Mrs. McCaddy. I picked out a couple that uh, viewers would particularly find delightful. Here is Brian in his avuncular role reading the lesson at the altar. And uh, here is uh, David and uh, 
uh, Brian, uh, on the back of the Rootmaster, I thought better than putting one of you in, Mike, because I know that you don't like these candid shots. But uh, here's the other two hopping on the Rootmaster and toasting the couple. And I thought a good slogan or caption for this would be, having done a hit and run on the narrative, uh, our heroes made, they made good their escape. Yes. Okay. And uh, uh, NHS Ayrshire? We have on the website uh, a double billing from David Tate, who continues as a concerned citizen to rake through, I think he'll be doing in total all 14 of the NHS health areas in Scotland, uh, having asked them under the Freedom of Information legislation, how many deaths specifically from or of COVID rather than with COVID or COVID as underlying causes there were. Um, Region after region is saying a handful. So here we have Ayrshire and Arran, a populated part of the west of Scotland, and uh, Scottish borders, more thinly populated, but a, a major area uh, in, in Scottish healthcare. Um, the, the, the claim here is stronger, uh, and I think well-reasoned, that there was, in fact, no pandemic whatsoever in the Scottish borders. And that's not just from the health statistics from the councils and NHS, that's, or from the NHS, rather. It's also the funeral data from the council showing that there's no increased mortality. Yes, OK. And uh, one final mention from you on... Uh... Uh, some advertising, perhaps? Yes, we found this a good opportunity to say why we don't produce stickers. We're sometimes asked to in the UK column shop. But we prefer this kind of thing, which is uh, our good friend Jason Leosatos uh, finding that someone's advertising for UK column. That's on their own property in a car. Uh, and the, for those listening in audio, the car window has a sticker, say, or a notice saying UK Column News is the news, is the news they don't want you to know. Uh, but if we put out stickers, of course, we have a, a problem that people write shirty letters to us saying, call your dogs off because your people, we don't actually make the stickers ourselves, have been plastering our campus or shop with stickers and you're liable, which we're not. We don't produce the stickers for that very reason. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, move on to this then. And nuclear weapons. Now, uh, the question of whether US nuclear weapons uh, are located on UK soil or not seems to be coming back into the news. So this is from November 2022. This is uh, the Federation of American Scientists. Lake and Heath uh, Airbase added to nuclear weapons storage site upgrades was what they were reporting back then. Uh, so this is what they said. U.S. Defense Department documents show that NATO has quietly added the United Kingdom to the list of nuclear weapons storage locations that are being upgraded. Uh, the documents do not identify the specific facility, uh, but it's believed that to be U.S. Air Base at RAF Lake and Heath uh, in southeast England, approximately 100 kilometers northeast of London. And they highlight uh, this uh, document, uh, which says that in addition, NATO finds infrastructure required to store special weapons, and special weapons is the name that they give for nuclear weapons, within secure sites and facilities. NATO is wrapping up a 13-year, $384 million infrastructure investment program at storage sites in Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, the UK, and Turkey to upgrade security measures, communication systems, and facilities. Um, so that was uh, in 2022. Uh, a new article has come out from the same source, the Federation of American Scientists. It's entitled Increasing Evidence that the U.S. Air Force's nuclear mission may be returning to U.K. soil. Um, and this is uh, from the 28th, so a couple of days ago. Uh, and this is what they're saying. New U.S. Air Force budgetary documents strongly imply that the United States Air Force is in the process of reestablishing its nuclear weapons mission on U.K. soil. The Air Force's uh, financial year 2024 budgetary justification package Dated March 2023, notes the planned construction of a surety dormitory uh, at RAF Lake and Heath, approximately 100 kilometres northeast of London. Now, uh, the surety dormitory was also briefly mentioned in the Department of Defence's testimony 
uh, to Congress in March 2023, but with no accompanying explanation. Surety is a term commonly used within the Department of Defense and Department of Energy to refer to the capability to keep nuclear weapons safe and secure and under positive control. And in this case, what they're building is dorms for 144 staff uh, on the site. So if we put that back on screen for a second, we'll look at the actual document. Uh, they say that it, the current situation here is, is marked with a red box with the influx of airmen due to the arrival of the potential surety mission uh, and the bed down of two F-35 squadrons. Uh, there is a significant deficiency in the amount of unaccompanied, uh, unaccompanied housing available for uh, E-4s and below at Royal Air Force Lake and Heath. So Alex, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Are we going to see uh, uh, the uh, Greenham Common style protest in the next year or two? We could, although it's out in the sticks in, in Suffolk there at RAF uh, Lake and Heath. Like all these RAF bases, with our, uh, U.S. Air Force personnel, you might as well call it USAF, Lake and Heath, USAF, uh, or NSA, Men with Hill, but we call it RAF for show. The E-4s, if memory serves, are the skilled equivalent of NCOs, Master Sergeant. And so if they're anticipating there's a shortage of beds for them, uh, they're wanting these uh, young, certainly not unskilled, but you know the, the, the know-how operatives to come over uh, early career in order to man the bombs uh, if parts of America have been wiped out is the long and the short of that. Um, this this project uh, of six countries that had a mixture of either US Air Force or National Air Force operated airdropped nuclear bombs was really avowed by Dutch Prime Minister Ruud Lubbers uh, around the same time as the John Major Premiership, uh, who was Dutch Prime Minister and who blabbed which uh, Dutch base it was. Uh, at least a couple of the continental countries get to drop these bombs themselves uh, under the various protocols they've agreed bilaterally. But in the case of Britain, the Royal Air Force hands that honour over to the US, which therefore gets a dyad because it can uh, launch nuclear weapons from submarines in our territory if it wants, based in our territory, uh, or from the air. The, the one that doesn't have to complete the triad is the ICBMs on British territory, but that might be next. Uh, now, very, very briefly, Alex, uh, do you think, I mean, I'm surprised to see Turkey listed there, but nonetheless... Do you think that uh, should those weapons be brought back onto British soil, we'll be told about it or will they be brought in secretly? No, I think the US is extremely strict in its bilateralism here. So we might find out from the Turks through NATO channels or our own bilateral channels, but there won't be a squeak from, from Uncle Sam there. Yeah, OK. OK, let's come back to Germany then. And uh, will the Gates Foundation getting money? What's going on? This comes from uh, parliamentary questions asked to the German government, uh, not this time by Alternative for Germany members of parliament, but from Die Linke, the left, which has an anti-globalist wing. It's a very split party these days. Um, so the Daily Skeptic comes uh, along with the headline, Germany has partnered with Gates Foundation to the tune of billions of euros. The pseudonym here, Robert Kogon, is for a specialist somewhere in Europe. And this is the one to read first from the show notes, because uh, Kogon points out that it is, in fact, a partnership in, in other channels and on other platforms. It's been misreported, misunderstood, as if it was a bung of money just from Germany to the Gates Foundation or vice versa. But really, the public-private partnership is completely seamless here. Um, the trouble is that uh, if you go to this source document, which comes from Transparenz Test, a German site uh, wishing transparency, they first picked up on and popularized the fact that these parliamentary questions had been asked. But sadly, the first uh, US uh, reporting, the first reporting in English, uh, made the mistake of understanding milliarden euro as millions of euros and reported scandal. Nearly four million euros has been given by the German taxpayer to the Bill Gates Foundation. No, milliard means billion. 
I have the full website here in front of me and I won't read it all. Uh, but the first parliamentary question was replied to uh, giving a table, which if you go to this German page on the show notes, you will find that even if you can't read German or don't want to use a search uh, a translation engine, you'll find sharp, clear tables, mostly in English, of what's been given. The first question was, um, what uh, project are you currently funding with uh, private organizations? And that was a cool uh, 450 million euros, just uh, shy of half a billion euros. And then the second question is the real shocker. Which it's the asks the question the other way around. Which organisations and programmes are you partnering with, um, or, uh, partnering on with private organisations? Again, not personalising it to, to Gates or the other ones that are mentioned: Gavi, Rockefeller, um, uh, Britain's own Wellcome Trust. But they're all mentioned here. And the answer to that, if I find the figure here, is three thousand three hundred sixty-five million seven hundred eighty-one thousand eight hundred forty-seven euros. Mm-hmm. Also, question nine is of interest, which is. How many um, or what are the private organizations uh, in which the uh, federal German government has a voting seat uh, for these purposes? And they put an attachment together to answer that question. None of the big boys like Gates and Gavi have a German government person on the board. Uh, But it really is a question of money flowing together because of the 31 projects mentioned, 24 in this, this parliamentary reply were money solely going from the German government, German taxpayer, I should say, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. No other private people, were, private organisations were involved. Uh, but for the shocker, you go to this more populist website, Slay News, and you will see here that it's uh, Bill Gates' population control programmes. Just a glance at the website will show you uh, that, of course, they're, they're trying to take a particular populist angle here, but not, I would say, that's uh, particularly wrong. Now, they're, they're uh, talking here about... Uh, uh, there's, there's, there's an organization mentioned halfway down this page called Better Than Cash, uh, which is an organization uh, which is Gates funded and the Germans are paying for it with their tax money. And that's for the Philippines. Whereas in Malawi, what they do with the German taxpayers money that flows together with Gates money, Gates has a lot of his own money put into this, uh, is telling the, the Africans to stop having excess children. Okay. Uh, well, Debbie, let's come back to you then. And uh, the, well, the latest COVID Yeah, well, I'm going to call this segment COVID-23 because uh, we've got another new variant, would you believe, as if Eris and Pirola, Eris, by the way, means strife and Pirola means asteroid. Um, We've now got Fornax. um, So this Fornax, which is FL151, is the newest thread. And by the way, Fornax means in Latin, I believe, furnace. Um, so what it, we all seem to be having a bit of a confusing message going on because we've got uh, we've got Anthony Fauci saying that actually he's all for more lockdowns. Let's lock down and let's force vaccinations. In fact, we'll use lockdowns to force vaccinations on people. So that's an article in the European Times. Um, however, we've got conflicting advice again from a, a study that was done in South Korea over the toxicity of masks. And as we all know, masks, uh, paper, cotton, they're ineffective, they're often dangerous, and uh, there's plenty of studies to say you shouldn't be using them. However, in Atlanta, they don't seem to have got the message because they're going to bring back COVID mask mandates. The USA seems to be way ahead of the curve on this, so we need to be watching the USA. So they're going to make it compulsory um, and also for health workers. And then if we stay with the college in, in Atlantis, 
they're actually going to go to more lengths and they're going to be banning parties. So physical distancing's coming back into place, quarantine, temperature checks, uh, large gatherings will be stopped. Uh, I mean, you know, this is happening now, but they're not alone because if you check Rutgers, um, you can see that Rutgers are now requiring proof of vaccines. Um, and if you just go to the next slide, we'll just illustrate their policy because you can see that their policy is called immunization program. And if you flip to the next slide, you can see that no one can come on campus if they're sick. And this is a real, th these are a, a very um, strict and stringent measures they're taking place. But let's see what the CDC say, shall we? Because I went to the CDC to look for the risk assessment for the summary for BA286, which is the same variant that they're worried about in the States in Atlanta with these colleges. And as you go on and have a look at the current risk assessment, you'll see that based on what the CDC knows now, existing tests used to detect and medications used to treat COVID-19 appear to be effective. And it, I've just highlighted some of the red text there in the current risk assessment, because it says at this point, there is no evidence that this variant is causing more severe illness. And then if you flip to the next slide, it says, what can you do to prevent preventative actions? So you could get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay home if you're sick, get tested if needed. And again, there it says, if you choose to wear a mask, if you choose, so no mandate and wash your hands. But if we go again to the next slide, I'd like you to pay, pay particular attention to the fact that there has been three cases in Denmark, two in South Africa, one in Israel, two in the United States, and one in the United Kingdom. And the severity apparently is it's too soon to know whether this variant may cause more severe illness compared with previous variants. And then if we jump to the next slide again from the CDC, you'll see that it says nearly all the US population has antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 from vaccination, previous infection or both. And it's likely that these antibodies will continue to provide some protection against severe disease from this variant. This is an area of ongoing scientific um, investigation. And, you know, one thing, if we could just go back a slide, I forgot to say something quite important on the slide prior, because it says that um, nearly all the US population has antibodies. But in one of the slides, it actually says the people at risk in the current risk assessment are the people that have had COVID previously or who have had COVID vaccines. Sorry, that's the slide with current risk assessment. I do apologize. Um, if you if people just want to freeze, that's the one. Um, so you'll see there on the second paragraph there, BA286 may be more capable of causing infection in people who have previously had COVID-19, who have received COVID-19 vaccines. My big question is, isn't that what a vaccine's meant to do? Prevent you from getting something, but obviously not. Uh, indeed. Um, okay, back to you, Alex. Yes, German horrors get worse, actually. We start this segment with uh, something that's nearly two months old in Der Spiegel, in their Panorama imprint, which goes deeper into societal issues. At this point in early July, uh, they were reporting that the northern states of uh, Lower Saxony, uh, Niedersachsen, uh, had decided to stop, a, to put a stop to what was called a Körpererkundungsraum, or a body exploration space at a nursery. 
A kita, a German acronym, uh, is a daycare centre for preschool children. And there were already plans at this point in one particular nursery, Kita, in Hanover, uh, to have a groping area specifically for children to explore themselves sexually. This was uh, halted by the Landesjugendamt, the, uh, the, the state uh, youth authority, uh, as uh, completely reprehensible and not going ahead. People thought that that issue then had gone to bed in Germany, but of course it is a state-by-state -state, uh, issue in this federal system the Germans have with 16 states with widely differing governments and persuasions. Uh, the next thing that we find is Die Welt last week is reporting, and this illustration I had to cut off there because it gets pubic below that. Uh, this isn't actually from the nurseries for context. This is uh, These are dolls which are used to teach students who become sexualizers of children. Uh, Germany's only dedicated uh, sexual education course in another state, but that's what Die Welt used to, in, in, to illustrate the piece. Uh, what they're reporting here under the title, where men uh, give birth to babies and the words man and woman are taboo, uh, is that uh, there are now two nurseries in the next state to the south, a very different context. It's got a Green Party-led government. Uh, it's got a Roman Catholic tradition rather than a Lutheran one. Sometimes these things actually make a big difference on a local level. Uh, sometimes for ill and sometimes for good. Uh, so what we find is that this, this matter has reared its head again in this state, Nordrhein-Westfalen. Just a few miles over the border, actually, from where I'm talking to you uh, are these places that are being talked about in this, uh, uh, this article, uh, that North Rhine-Westphalia, it doesn't say so in this piece, but with a Green Party-led government now, see things differently from Lower Saxony, uh, because children need to understand sexual uh, relationships and they can't be um, uh, prohibited from masturbating at these uh, nurseries. This is uh, language which has come from the children's ministry in the state, not from the nurseries themselves. The only thing the ministry is putting a stop to in the case of this other state, North Rhine-Westphalia, is that you can't have separate rooms for groping yourself as a, a small child. Uh, these should not be provided. Uh, this leaves the uh, prospect open that the other things that are talked about, the masturbation, uh, and the sexualized doctor play, which is uh, a big focus of these uh, these nurseries, perhaps will go ahead as before, but there will be no private spaces for it. It will be in view of the adults, which gets darker and darker. The next extract says that children will be allowed in these policies from these nurseries to withdraw to a protected area to discover themselves bodily and to satisfy themselves. This is already happening at this uh, nursery in Kerpen, just over the border from here in Western Germany. There is uh, the nursery's um, sexual uh, pedagogy plan, uh, which has been dug out by bloggers. It is supposedly a Roman Catholic um, nursery uh, dedicated to or in the name of St. Rochus, which makes it even more uh, surprising. I understand that uh, in Roman Catholic history, St. Rochus is one of the 14 helpers uh, who are who strong in intercession. Uh, but look at this. I'm not, I'm not proposing to read this out because it's disgusting, but Section 10 uh, of their uh, policy, which has not been contradicted by the, uh, the, the state government now, uh, is that there's that much detail on the page about young children's rights to masturbate. Uh, to write eight paragraphs about young children and masturbation is perhaps in itself rather shocking. Uh, but it gets worse even still, uh, because this stuff is just a warmed over version uh, of uh, this from 10 years ago. Jörg Maywald is the uh, expert who's written this ac academic look looking book on teaching, te teaching sexuality at nurseries, at kitas in Germany. 
Uh, and as the blogger, who uh, we don't have a slide for him, but it will be in the show notes, uh, Oigupius has, has managed to find out, uh, Maivalt's arguments here have prevailed and have uh, found their way into uh, the policies. And if you're wondering where this uh, leads, well, it can go to an international level. David Scott wrote this more than five years ago now, uh, that Peter Newell uh, was convicted for child molestation, and yet he was the author of the handbook for implementing the three-volume uh, UNICEF uh, manual on the rights of the child. Uh, so it looks like figures like Maivalt are doing the same in Germany and saying children have a perfect right to explore their bodies and masturbate. And uh, when this is uh, gets gets into a scandal, first in Bilt Zeitung with the case of uh, Lower Saxony and then Develt in the case of North Rhine-Westphalia, uh, depending on political shade of the local state government, they might be told naughty people, you mustn't have masturbating rooms, but the rest of it will be allowed to stand. The idea that children have a right to do these things. The only difference now is that they'll be doing them in front of the nursery teachers, it seems. Yes. Uh, well, that's, going, yes, go ahead, Alex. That's straight into the Netherlands, because uh, here in the Netherlands, there is a council. Um, it's obviously Christian based with the name. It has Bibles Berat MV, which means uh, the Council on uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They are just doing a cover story here uh, for something I'm about to show the source for in a moment, uh, which flags to people's attention that the Dutch protocol for teaching trans children, or rather treating trans children, uh, which has now become an international touchstone among trans advocacy, is perhaps going to uh, go the way of the dodo soon. Uh, people like to say that the Dutch protocol, like everything else, the Dutch approach in this and that, is, is so enlightened we, and we must follow it. And the idea of the three stages uh, first give puberty blockers supposedly to buy time for an undecided child uh, and then uh, give the um, the um, uh, hormones and then finally give the surgery. That's what makes up the Dutch protocol. This came into being as somewhere between an official and an unofficial treatment protocol because of the decentralized nature of healthcare here. It came about uh, in a body which stands halfway between the health insurers and the government. And now, Nederland's Juristenblad which is actually required reading for all Dutch lawyers, is saying that this is probably unlawful. The Dutch protocol was formulated five years ago, and in the introductory paragraph on screen, they're saying that uh, civil uh, courts should not regard the Dutch protocol, which has come into being de facto and been spun out to Britain with the Tavistock Clinic and other places, they shouldn't regard that as de rigueur or legal or moral, uh, because it is, uh, if you apply it, you're uh, sexually maiming people for life, you're preventing them from reproducing, uh, all kinds of complications for body and soul, and it may leave you liable. So Dutch lawyers are in a different position now uh, on this, and that probably hasn't sowed, sown its way out into other countries that think that the Dutch protocol has become the gold standard for trans children care. Yes, okay, thank you, Alex. Um, okay, we'll just, uh, if you don't mind, just jump over this and we'll move this section into into uh, extra and let's move on to digital id uh, because we've been highlighting that uh, digital id is effectively here uh, already um, and i just want to bring back on screen the uk government's digital id frequently asked questions and a couple of claims that they made so first of all the claim was that the government is creating a mandatory idea id card uh, and the fact is according to the government that they're not doing that they're saying that the proposed legislation does not include any proposal to create either a digital or physical id card the government is committed to making it as easy as possible for people to prove who they are online and access the services they need without creating mandatory ID cards. So that should make us all feel very good. The other claim that they wanted to refute was that using the government's one login would be mandatory. 
And they claim that no, having a UK government one login account will not be mandatory for UK citizens. Offline and face-to-face routes will be available for individuals who do not want to use the online service. Well, this is simply a lie. Uh, So if we just put that back on screen for a second, the reason that this is simply a lie is because the government has now decided that they are going to provide a face-to-face route uh, and it's going to be through the post office. Uh, But this is, let's have a look at what they actually say. Uh, So they're saying the government uh, is currently rolling out gov.uk one login, which allows users to have just one account, one username, one password, and one identity check to use many different government services online. Uh, They say these services will include accessing self-assessment tax returns, conducting a DBS check, or applying for pension credit. The free in-person system will enable those who find a digital platform, using a digital platform more challenging, to visit a local post office branch where they can verify their identity in person using the one login system. So to suggest that there's going to be a face-to-face option, which means you don't have to use one login, is simply wrong. They're now just simply rolling this out to post offices so that there is somebody that you can go to to get help with using the one login system. Uh, Then uh, the question is, is the post office appropriate for this? So so let's look at one of the other claims the government had wanted to refute, that sharing data in this way will erode my privacy rights. Well, are you, since uh, local post offices tend to have local staff in your local community, potentially people that you know, are you happy to go and uh, get them to help you with your self-assessment tax return or to help you with your pension pension claim or whatever? Is this the kind of level of uh, uh, privacy that you are prepared to expose to Uh, staff within your own community. Uh, Then the government, other claim that the government was wanting to refute was this will make it easier for hackers to get hold of my data. And they're saying cybersecurity is a critical priority for the government. We recognize how important it is to protect users and their data and have robust measures in place. Well, my question is, okay, the post office itself, uh, I'm not aware of any particular cybersecurity issues with the post office, but we cannot forget uh, the Horizon scandal. So the post office has absolutely demonstrated that they cannot be trusted with IT systems. And if you're for those that aren't in the UK and don't know this story, I'll just read what they say about it. They what has become known as the Horizon IT scandal involves a dispute, a dispute uh, between post office and a group of postmasters, which took place over many years. Uh, It primarily concerns the reliability of the Horizon computer system used in post offices and issues related, post, uh, issues related to postmasters' contracts and the culture of the post office at the time. This isn't just about the culture of the post office at the time, because if you remember, what happened was that postmasters were accused of fraud as a result of failures, bugs in this Horizon IT system. Uh, the post office pursued those postmasters. Some of them ended up in prison. Some of them committed suicide. At, no, at this point in time, if they're talking about a culture in the past, Uh, At this point in time, the post office is still refusing to pay out compensation on this. And what's more, the post office is paying their board members uh, bonuses for the the fact that they perceive that the board did very, very well at the inquiry and not too much dirt got stuck to the post office. This is actually a pretty disgraceful organization. And I personally would feel pretty uncomfortable if I needed to use it uh, to... uh, I'm not talking about people that are standing at the counters, of course, but the organization and the quality of that organization, whether it can be trusted with my data if I have to go and verify my uh, identification uh, in a post office branch. Uh, So anyway, 
Uh, very briefly, Alex, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, the book to read is The Great Post Office Scandal. I'm just trying to get the author up uh, as I speak. Uh, but the, the thing I got out of reading that book is the complete arrogance of those running the post office with their, a word often used in the book, but, but rightly is Victorian, their Victorian attitudes, that it's such a, a privilege for you, co corner shop owner, to be a sub postmaster. Uh, we are entrusting you with this stuff and you're on your own. And the moment our sy system says you probably defrauded us, because our systems are shot through, then we're going to be prosecuting you, <clears throat> and we will expect the magistrates' courts to take our side because because we're the establishment. It's called the Great Post Office Scandal by Nick Wallace, W A L L I S. Yes. Okay. Let's just very quickly move on to media matters, and I wanted to highlight this article that was in the Daily Mail today. The headline was "Fugitive Drug Lord Who Stole Cartels 450 Pound." That's 450 pounds in weight. Uh, of cocaine shipment is tossed alive into ocean with an anchor tied to his waist. What the Daily Mail did here was to publish a snuff film. And this, as far as I'm concerned, absolutely crossed the line, Alex, and I'm interested in your thoughts. They showed some footage recorded on a mobile phone of a criminal, yes, uh, a member of the drugs cartel who had an anchor tied around his waist and he was bailed into the ocean. Uh, now, you didn't see, you saw him being pushed overboard. You didn't see him enter the water, but you did see him sink as he sank away under the water. It was pretty hard video to watch and absolutely not appropriate. In the meantime, we've got online safety bill, uh, Alex, which is telling us how terrible we all are in the use of our social media when we've got this type of thing being published in the mainstream media. I, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, I'm equally concerned by Adri Torres's copy in writing this copy. I think it's to, to him that's the complaints or she, her, I don't know whether it's a female name, should be made as much as to the Daily Mail, uh, because the rubric is full of these nod, 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 wink, wink, uh, Fleet Streetisms, like what a silly boy to think he could cover up his ruse. And uh, he met a watery demise. Clearly, it's making light of what the gang did to him. Uh, now, I understand that the, the heist he was involved in, which he was punished for by his own uh, uh, fellow uh, plotters, drug uh, gang members, uh, involved the British Virgin Islands. So there is potentially a British legal end to this. And, uh, and I'm not aware that any Venezuelan drug cartels are proscribed by the Home Secretary. But the Daily Mail could be skirt uh, skating on thin ice there legally, going back to, I think it's Section 12 of the uh, Terrorism Act 2000, uh, which makes it a criminal offence. Uh, to uh, elicit support for a proscribed organization. Uh, many people who've been, been involved in ethnic uh, terrorist organizations or freedom fighters to some in Britain have found themselves on the wrong end of the law for that section uh, for putting up uh, photographs of people doing their, their criminal or terrorist, according to people's opinions, uh, activities. I don't see how this is morally any different. Whether it's legally any different may have to be taken to case law. Yes. Okay. In the meantime, EU and uh, Digital Services Act. Uh, a quick uh, enlightener uh, of what can be done on Twitter. Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the president of the European Commission, decided last week, or get, got, get, got our staff to do it, uh, to announce we're bringing our European values into the digital world. This was on the day, as I reported last week, that the Digital Services Act became EU law. Uh, requiring self-censorship on large platforms. And you know that on Twitter now, it was invented, uh, this feature, so that people could get more woke about a tweet. Uh, they have this reader's added context section. So people with the volume of uh, 
uh, a context they've added have forced this through into, onto Twitter, uh, pointing out to von der Leyen and the Commission that actually this act is probably in direct conflict with Article 11, uh, 11 of the EU's own uh, constitution, the Charter of Fundamental Rights on Freedom of Expression, and also that uh, speech can be removed in an instant by the giants, the 19 uh, very large platforms uh, under this act, but it could take them years to be reinstated. But the EU's woes don't end there this week because uh, Christina Andersen, member of the European Parliament for Alternative for Deutschland, uh, has found out from figures given to her that the European Commission, that's von der Leyen and her colleagues, uh, spent 2.75 million euros on photographers and makeup artists for their media appearances. Brilliant. Okay, and uh, Debbie, let's just uh, finish with uh, Stand in the Park. Oh, yes, I'm doing a call to action for Stand in the Park because I think some of the Stand in the Parks, not as many people are turning up as did at the beginning. And I went to Truro last Sunday for Stand in the Park at Boscowan Park, and we had a great time. Honestly, thank you so much to Julie and the rest of the group. There's some photos. Um, we really did have a good time. And I'm going to be going again on um, Sunday at 10 o'clock at Boscowan Park in Truro, but you know, it's a, it's an amazing resource. And with all these cyber outages, and as we're talking, there's a hurricane uh, making landfall in Florida. You need to have local, local knowledge, local people. So please everybody. And if anybody's in Cornwall and wants to join us on in Truro on Sunday, we'd be delighted to see you. Okay, thank you, Debbie. And uh, Alex, let's just finish with a final uh, slide then. There's always fun when a meme takes the form of a watercolour with a modern caption to it. And this one is the well-known uh, painting of a woman who's devastated by news that's reached her and her uh, young daughter is having to tug on her arm and say, Mummy, there's still reasons to live. Uh, but the caption that's been given to it this time is electricity bill, oil on canvas. Yes, very good. Okay, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Debbie and uh, Alex. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, if you're a UK call member for some extra uh, but otherwise, uh, we'll see you on Friday, as usual, at 1 p.m. Uh, I hope to see you then and uh, have a good uh, day tomorrow watching the interview with Clive to Carl. See you then. Bye bye.